Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Okay, I believe we are in Genesis 20. That's what we're going to do anyway. So let's turn to Genesis 20. I think there's a couple more biscuits over there and plenty of coffee. If You need to get up and stretch your legs. Uh, But uh, yeah, let's pray and then let's read the text. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful Sunday morning. We thank you for the fellowship that you've given us with one another, for the time that we're able to spend together as your people, and for the opportunity to gather around your word. We pray that you would bless our study, our reading, our hearing, our praying, our singing, our teaching of your word this morning. We pray that it would do its work in our hearts and in our minds, that that, um, Christ would show forth clearly from the scriptures to the honor and glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Genesis 20. Here we go. From there, and where's, where's there? Oh, yeah, we'll circle back. We'll circle back. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. 
And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right. What questions come to mind as we read through the text? We don't have any questions. We can keep going, right? We can just ignore this chapter. He was paid to get his wife back. Yeah. That is... Uh, and that was a lot of money at the same time. A lot of exchange. Yeah, a thousand pieces of silver. That's, that's not a small sum. On top of the sheep and servants and everything else you got. Yeah. Does this remind you of something? So, so on top of the sheep and oxen and servants and, and all of that, Mike mentioned. Does this remind you of something that we've read before? Didn't he do that before? You think he learned his lesson the first time because it didn't work the first time. Well, I like how you phrase that. You would think he learned his lesson because what lesson did he learn? Because how did it work out for him last time? It was Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12, first half of Genesis 12. He gets these incredible promises from God. Then there's a famine and he goes down into Egypt, right? And on the way, he and Sarah have a similar conversation and a similar thing happens, right? He's afraid of Pharaoh because his wife is so beautiful. And so he says, say you're my sister. And so Pharaoh sees a beautiful woman who appears to be um, unavailable, yes. Uh, And so he takes her, right? Which is more or less what Abraham thought Pharaoh would do. Uh, He's just removed himself as an obstacle, as it were, so that Pharaoh doesn't have to remove him as an obstacle. And what what happened as a result of that, right? God intervened, uh, Pharaoh discovered, and then what happened to Abraham? Did he get killed? No. No, he didn't get killed. Uh, instead, he left Egypt enriched. Now, he, he probably got an escort all the way to the border, right? And don't ever come back here. Canceled his visa and all of that. Um, but the Lord protected him, right? The Lord fulfilled the promises he had given him earlier in chapter 12. He says, I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse, right? The Lord protected and blessed Abram. So here we come to chapter 20 and a very similar thing happens. And so, and so he does same kind of thing and the Lord blesses him. If he learned a lesson, he learned that he gets rich this way. <laughs> yeah. It's like, mm, I'll do this every time we move, right? I'll say she's my sister. And, um, this is why it's very, it's important to read narrative carefully, especially because we often, we, we read the Bible one of two ways, right? Either we read it, and we hold it at arm's length, and we're like, oh, that's interesting, but that has nothing to do with me. Or we read it saying, what's God trying to teach me in this today? And, and we, we do that too quickly. So that we'll read something and we'll tack on, go therefore and do likewise, when the narrator doesn't, right? Anywhere in this passage, do we get any indication that we should go therefore and do likewise? No, right? We're supposed to answer no, but... But, but we do hesitate, right? Because cause he does this twice and he gets blessed both times. So, I mean. He also gets chastised by a pagan leader. Like, how humiliating. He's supposed to be God's people. And this pagan, pagan leader is, supposed to, is, is talking to him about his morals. Yes. I'm so glad that has never, ever happened to any of us where we've been in a situation or someone who did not love God was more upstanding in that situation than we were and maybe pointed out places where we failed to live up to what we confess, right? That's never, 
ever happened to anyone else in the history of God's people. And certainly not in this room. Uh, oh. <laughs> I think it's interesting how he tries to, uh, I don't say cover his lie, but walk back. Nah, technically I didn't lie to you, but she is my sister. So that's kind of interesting. What I find very interesting in that, right? Because he does, he does, he tries to cover his lie and say, you know, she actually, she, she is my sister, like sort of, like 30% my sister, or, you know, however we want to quantify that. Um, there's a very interesting dynamic as you read the text. We get that from Abraham. We get no comment on that from the narrator. At no point does the narrator say, yeah, and that was actually true. Or, and Abraham was lying through his teeth. Right? We, don't, we don't get any evaluation of that from the standpoint of the narrator. Um, it's very, very interesting that that's withheld. Because that's often where we get the most information about someone. is when the narrator has told us what happened, and then they say what happened, and they match or they don't match. And here, there's just, there's no comment. Uh, I mean, you read it, and it's really awkward. Abraham trying to defend himself along these lines. And maybe that's part of how the narrator clues us in to how we should read that, is that he just lets that awkwardness sit there. Like, really? Really, man? She's your sister? Really? So that language of sister, by the way, is very, very general. The language of sister and the language of brother, right? Like, this is language you could apply to your blood sibling who's a child of the same parents, right? It is language you could apply to a half-sibling, right? Your father has multiple wives, and so you're half-sisters. She's your sister. You're her brother. It's, it's very similar to the French cousin, right? You can apply it to someone who has some kind of relationship somewhere in the family, or a friend or a neighbor who's become closely associated with your family. Or someone who's come under the protection of your roof. And this is not clearly resolved here. And we've seen that Abraham is playing linguistic games with these labels. And so he clearly intends that we understand what he says to be saying that she is actually my half-sister. But it could be that the relationship is actually more distant than that, that she came under the protection of his father's house. Or maybe she was the, the widow of one of his other brothers. Or, right, Abraham just, he uses ambiguous language throughout, clearly intending to give one impression. That makes sense? He specifically says she's the daughter of his father. Yes. Is that ambiguous? Because that doesn't sound ambiguous. It can be, Yeah. The sons of can mean the literal son of or daughter of, but it can also mean you're associated with their household more broadly. That's what I mean. He's, he's using language that's clearly intended to give a very specific impression. But he's already used language in that way to deceive. And the narrator doesn't step in and clarify. So... Um, Although he was being deceptive in the way of what he was doing and what he said, 
uh, he, he, uh, God still answered his prayer when he prayed to God at the end of the chapter there. Yes. Uh, and uh, that, that to us should be a reminder, although we sin greatly, uh, God still answers our prayer. Yes. Yes. So there are several things to ask about this text, about its twin, so to speak, in Genesis 12, right? There's no clear go therefore and do likewise. So, so don't try that, right? Um, but there are larger questions for us to ask, right? And, and a big question hanging over this and others is, will God fulfill his promises? And there are several layers to that question, right? Will our devising or trying to help God or sinning against his commands, on the other hand, will these things prevent God from fulfilling his promises? Or will they cause him to say, you know what, actually, dishonor, like, cursing those who dishonor you and blessing those who bless you, that's, that's too much trouble. I didn't know you were going to be such a mess. And so we're going to pause that and time out and never mind, right? Or will, right, does his fulfilling his promises require Abraham and Sarai to try and maneuver and, and work out the fulfillment themselves? Like God's promised that this will happen, but you figure out the means and God will ensure it, right? Will Abraham's sin prevent God from fulfilling his promises? Can other powerful people enter the picture and problematize this idea of God fulfilling his promises? And that's a question that hangs over this entire narrative going all the way back to Genesis 12. But it becomes particularly acute in different ways in each chapter. So that's one thing that hangs over, right? Another question that hangs over this is, was Abraham wrong? And there's a couple of ways we can ask that, right? Was he wrong to do what he did, or to put it differently, is it wrong to deceive in order to protect? And again, it's, it's one thing to ask that in, in, the, um, in carrying out a war, in terms of strategy, like laying an ambush. Well, that's an intentional deception, right? Psychological warfare and like painting logs to look like cannons. Well, that's, most of us are not going to object to that kind of deception, but here in Genesis 20 and Genesis 12, this is not the same kind of deception because his manner of deception exposes his wife to danger. That's different. That's different. Killing the Nazis that are not hiding Jews. Is that a comparative context here? I would absolutely do that with a clear conscience, right? If I have, I'm hiding someone from a tyrannical government operative, and they come knock at the door and say, are they there? I'm going to say no, and I'm not going to let you in. That may not go well for me, right? But I would have no trouble with deception at that level. But, that's, but that would be different than saying, no, they're not at my house. They're at Kenny's house, right? They're hiding in Kenny's shed. Go look over there, right? Because that's... <laughs> Right, and maybe on the one hand, I'm leading them on a wild goose chase that keeps them busy, but in doing that, I'm also exposing Kenny to danger because they may go check Kenny's shed and find they're not there and decide that the reason they're not there is not because I lied, but because Kenny got warning and hid them, and so they're going to take it out on Kenny and his family. Right, and so I've exposed Kenny to danger in doing that. 
But there's another level at which we can ask this question. Was Abraham wrong? Because what prompted his deception was a discerning that I'm entering into a situation of danger, right? Pharaoh had a reputation, taking whatever he wanted. And sure enough, they enter into Egypt and he sees that Sarah is beautiful. So he takes her. Would he have been prevented by Abraham being her husband? We don't know. We get the general impression that God's intervention is what keeps that from going sideways, both in Egypt and here in Gerar. And here in Gerar, we see the same thing. Abraham and his wife enter the territory of this powerful individual who sees a woman he wants and takes her. And so there's this question, is Abraham's assessment of the danger he's entering wrong? Probably not, right? His maneuvering prevents us from seeing how God might have protected him had he chosen a different route. But we don't get to see how God would have fulfilled his promises to, to bless those who bless you and dishonor those, right? those who dishonor you, I will curse, in a situation where Abram did not expose his wife to danger. But Abraham's assessment of the danger he's entering into may have been an accurate assessment. It was about him and not anybody else. It was the selfish part of it. Yes. So again, the, the strategy he employs belies his selfishness. That his concern in Egypt, his concern here seems to be protecting himself and not protecting his wife. And that's a failure. That's a failure on two levels, right? That's a failure to believe God's promises and a failure to protect his household. And if we think about what we just read in the previous chapter, there's a larger danger here. Because there's the personal danger to Abraham. There's the personal danger to Sarah, but there's also the danger of the promise, right? Because God had told him at this time next year, I will visit again and Sarah will be with child. Well, because of the strategy he employs here, the question hanging over it until God steps in and resolves things, the question hanging over Sarah is if she bears a child at the end of the year, whose child will it be? It also seems like, though, that there's another timing issue because it's been long enough that Abimelech's harem, basically his wives and all that, are, are not conceiving or not bearing children. And so that would, you would make, that would make you think it's been a while, and yet it's going to take nine months for Sarah to go through her pregnancy herself. So the timing seems problematic. Yeah. God has to intervene both to protect Abimelech and protect Sarah and protect Abraham and protect the promise. Do you think his household is miscarrying and that allows for a shorter time frame rather than this three months without a pregnancy might not seem too noticeable unless there's been miscarriages? Or... I think that's likely. I don't think the text clarifies the nature. Right? It says the Lord had closed the wombs of, of Abimelech's whole household, but it doesn't clarify how that was evident. I do think that's likely. Well, 
The other thought that comes to mind is the notion of being wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove, which brings to mind assessing the danger or the intensity of the danger and the necessity of protection. I'm thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, at what point is our trust or faithfulness practical naivete? And, you know, again, I don't know if that's comparative or in a context, but, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said we will not bow down even though we're cast into the fire. And, you know, it just occurs to me if you share these thoughts that maybe Abraham said, or thoughts, thoughts. Of course, we don't know. We do know a little bit uh, because Abraham, Abraham says and appears to have been right that there's, he looked around, he said, there's no fear of God in this place, right? He talks about it in verse 11. He said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. And then he goes on and it starts to sound like other excuses we hear in scripture, right? Like the people made me do it or I threw in the gold. Now came this calf, right? But up to that point, he appears to be making an accurate assessment of the danger. But what he does is, in line with what he's done before, with what Sarah's suggested before, is a failure to trust God to, with working out the danger and the protection, and instead trying to, to hedge things himself. And again, in a way that exposes Sarah to danger he would not otherwise have been exposed to. Speaking of hedging, (laughs) why does Abimelech tell Sarah, I gave your brother a thousand pieces of silver, not your husband? That's a good question. So why, why does Abraham, or why does Abimelech say, I gave your brother rather than I've given your husband? This is verse 16 a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of your innocence, right? Um, That might be Abimelech making a little dig at the both of them. Uh, Or it may be that this conversation between Abraham and Abimelech has been in private and that this conversation is in public. That's another possibility. Of course, it could be that and he's also given a little dig. So... There are a couple of ways to assess this, right? We're going to see something similar in the life of Isaac a few chapters down the road as he is going to interact with another king called Abimelech. Probably that's a title rather than a personal name. So it may not be the same guy, although maybe it is. But Isaac is going to try a similar strategy with a wife who's definitely absolutely not his sister, although is his cousin or cousine. Um, That has led some people reading Genesis to say, look, they've taken this one story and they've repeated it. They've stuck it in there three times because the actual details have been lost in the telling and they don't remember when it actually happened. So they just reused it. And whoever put Genesis together was asleep at the wheel and and didn't notice before it went to press. I think you can tell by the way I'm phrasing that. I don't think very much of that notion of how this came to be Um, for a couple of reasons. One is I trust the text, but another is I know myself, right? And I fall into a pattern of using the same excuses 
in different seasons. Rose is nodding. <laughs> right? We, we do this when we sin, right? We fall, often, sometimes we find new sins to try, a terrifying thought. But at other times, we fall into patterns. We fall into patterns with the things we do. We fall into patterns with the way we try and excuse ourselves from those things. We fall into patterns in the ways that we try and maneuver God into doing things for us or try and avoid um, conviction and confession and repentance when we do things that we know we ought not do. And I think this repetition in Abraham's life is actually revealing to us that that's not something that's unique, right? That's not a part of my experience, and, but nobody else's. That's not something that happens to me, but doesn't happen to others. It's something that happens in the, in the life of Abraham. This, this great man of faith who has this tremendous promise from God, who is held up at various points as a model for us, is a model of failure as well as a model of great faith. He reveals to us what it looks like to act in belief in God's promises and also reveals to us what it looks like to fail to trust God at various points and to struggle along the same lines over a series of years. And I think actually that's, that's very helpful to see that. It can be discouraging too. It shows us how much we need Christ. But it can be a tremendous encouragement to us, I think, in the face of being confronted with and convicted by our sin to see that our struggle is not unique. Our difficulty in trusting God in difficult circumstances is not a difficulty that's, that's special and particular and, and unique to us. And we're able to see that God is faithful in the midst of the struggle of his people. And I, I think we can draw great encouragement from that. So, so I think there's something actually very much on purpose that, that Moses chose to record a persistent failure in Abraham and his household along these lines that reveals to the Israelites and to us that struggling to believe God's promises is, is not new. Struggling to believe God's promises in the face of incredible demonstration of his deliverance of his people, even, is not new. And it's not unique to them. Still requires faith and confession and repentance and all of that. But we're not alone. We're not without hope. We're not, right? God's not going to be like, okay, that's it. I'm done. And wash his hands and go somewhere else. I have a question. The, the gift that Abimelech gives to Abraham, does that necessarily signal her innocence? Like automatically? Or would it be understood as, well, she displeased me and I don't want her anymore and I'm making kind of restitution because uh, she's kind of the opposite of innocence. Could it be understood that way by people watching? That's a good question that I don't have a good answer for. I think they would have the same range of options in choosing to believe what Abimelech says or, or look at it in a different light as, as we do. But the result of all of this is something that's felt well beyond just Abimelech. Um, 
right? If, if we look at the result of that interaction, right? He gives this money as a sign of innocence, right? He enriches Abraham and then tells him, live wherever you want. And then Abraham prays and Abimelech's household is healed. And I think that um, clarifies the light in which everyone would view it, right? Because he's afflicted and then he's not. I think that removes the option of, even for his contemporaries, of reading the interaction cynically. That's a good question. He as much tells God that, look, I did this with good conscience. I didn't didn't do this on purpose. I really thought that this was his sister, right? And, um, you know, to that end, you know, if if that's true, and we assume it is true because it's in the Bible, or we believe it is true because it's in the Bible, that why is there the need? And God believes that. He he says, yes, you're right. You know, and, and essentially the way that God is... Continuing to keep his people is different here than it is in the the sister uh, narrative uh, from chapter 12. Um, Because he essentially says, look, it's not too late. I've kept you from sin, right? Um, And going to that. So, I mean, to that end, you know, um, I don't know that it's the buy-off. It doesn't feel that way to me in in this text because of those reasons. I mean, even God himself believed that he did this in good conscience um, and wasn't trying to sin, although it was about to. I love that you bring that out because we see the way God interacts with Abimelech here. Uh, I think likewise of how he interacts with Nineveh in the book of Jonah, right? He's confronted with his sin by the Lord's intervention and he has the opportunity to repent or go forward with it anyway. When he's confronted with it, he repents. He protests his innocence with which God agrees. And then God moves him toward a resolution of all of that. Whether Abimelech becomes down the road, one who worships the Lord or whether he just avoids continuing in the consequences of this sin, we don't know because that's not, we're not filled in on that. But likewise, when Jonah is sent to Nineveh to preach, right? Nineveh is confronted with their sin and they repent and God honors that. And the the immediate destruction of Nineveh is, is averted, right? Even though later it is nevertheless destroyed. But that, that 40 days and probably even that generation, they repent. And so God relents of what he told them through Jonah that they would do. I find that to be one of the most encouraging parts of this this version of the narrative or um, this instance of the narrative relative to, to chapter 12 because there are times where we all fall into unbelief. There are all times where there's times when we choose to go away that it's not godly, right? But God's sovereign hand is still at play and right before we're about to make a complete and total mess of the big orchestrated plan, God steps in and says, that's enough. <coughs> this situation, I'm going to bring it back to the course I want it to be. And, um, you know, I just, you know, I see God's keeping power in this text. And I see it in different ways in chapter 12, kind of flipping back 
you know, there he actually inflicted the pain which caused the change. But here it was different. It was, I'm going to inflict pain if you continue, right? Um, but regardless of whether the pain was inflicted or not, it really doesn't matter. The point is, is that he kept his people. And that's incredibly encouraging for a uh, fallen person like myself. What's fascinating to me is here's this imperfect leader. And we look, we're not really given a reaction from the chosen people as they regard his leader and his decisions. Appropriate or inappropriate, protective or not protective. And I'm thinking of how we treat our Christian leaders today. And the mistakes that they made in the 19th, 20th, or 21st century. I mean, if if they are put up on positions of authority and power and then they fall, we are the first to pick up the stones to assail them. Interesting. Another thing I think is interesting here is that I think Abimelech emerges, right? We're, we often look for someone whose actions we're meant to follow. Right or wrong, we tend to do that when we read narrative. We assume that one of the characters is held up as a model, right? And so we're looking for that, go therefore and do likewise. Um, and I think Abraham is clearly held up as don't, don't do this. It will not go well. Even though God intervenes to protect his people anyway. And I think interestingly, Abimelech is held up instead as the model of what we should do. In the sense that, like Abimelech, when we're confronted with our sin, our response should be immediate, thorough repentance and a turning aside, right? I mean, Sarah was beautiful. He had her in his power. He could have said, yeah, whatever. And of course he didn't. But could he though? I mean, really? Because this isn't gun to his head. This is not him acting out of the integrity of his heart. And yet, the threat of God's judgment, there are an awful lot of people who are not given any pause by the threat of God's judgment, either eventual or immediate. Abimelech could have hardened his heart against God's judgment. The fear is a gift, I think, in this situation because the text starts with there was no fear of God, right? And by the end, there is fear of God. And that fear, I think, oftentimes for myself anyway, is the keeping power of God that keeps you from, I mean, that's really not a whole lot different from the rest of us, right? If we think about it, like, we do have a gun to our hands. Right? If you do these things, if you don't accept Christ, if you reject these mercies, if you reject these graces that are given to you freely, there really is a consequence. So I don't know that it's a whole lot different than the choice that we make. I mean, um, it's interesting to note that both of these things happen. Genesis 12, here, Genesis 20, it happened when. Abraham is sojourning, right? He's, it says he, he journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. I don't know 
where Gerar is. But the Negev is the extreme south of Palestine. Kadesh is one of the places where Israel stops on the way. Okay, Shur is toward Egypt. It's on the Palestinian side of the Red Sea, but it's, it's off that direction. In other words, it appears likely that he's passed out of the southern border of the promised land and is kind of southwest of the land God told him to occupy. Not all the way into Egypt, but these things happen. He perceives this danger. He sells his wife off of his, as his sister in moments when he's sojourning outside the promised land. That raises the question, without clarifying it, but that raises the question as we're thinking about Abraham's failures and his failure to trust. Was there an earlier failure in leaving the land of promise? No, no. It's not clarified. It's raised, but not clarified. Right? In Genesis 12, it's clearly because of a famine. In here, in this chapter, the why is not given. But that's another feature that the two episodes have in common when he's left the promised land and is sojourning somewhere else that these things come to pass. Now, with this one, though, in 12, Pharaoh just told him to go. This one, however, said, here's my land, you can dwell, like, meaning you can live permanently, you can set up camp, I'm assuming, wherever you like. So now he's actually... That is an important difference. Awesome. Well, we are at 1036. So let's, let's pray. Let's, let's not try and venture into chapter 21 this week. We'll save that for next. Lord, we thank you for the book of Genesis, for how people you have given great promises to and dwelt among and led and blessed and protected are both seemingly so different and yet also so much like us. We pray that you might encourage us as we learn about your ways with them, your faithfulness to them, your calling them to repent of sin, your faithfulness to bless and provide and protect. We pray that we might imitate their faith and avoid their faults, that we might be quick to respond to conviction with confession and repentance, that you would assure us of pardon through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.